Hello and welcome to this edition of Cato Connects, a special School Choice Week edition of Cato Connects. I'm Caleb Brown. I'm the Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute. Tonight we're talking about a particular school choice reform that was adopted in New Hampshire in 2012. That is scholarship tax credits, a program that allows low to moderate income parents to get a little extra boost as they consider the education options for their children. Uh, and I'll be talking tonight with uh, three people who played a pretty big role in this uh, program. Uh, Jim Forsyth is a former New Hampshire state senator and sponsor of the legislation that eventually became this tax credit program. Jason Bedrick is an education policy analyst at the Cato Institute and notably a former state lawmaker in the state of New Hampshire. And Dick Comer is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice who fought on behalf of this program at the New Hampshire Supreme Court. We'll be taking your questions via Twitter. Um, and uh, until then, please enjoy Live Free and Learn. Lenny was facing going into seventh grade and our local junior high school is atrocious. You know, it's just, I, I didn't want her in there. Thomas's elementary school uh, did a good job meeting his educational needs. We were concerned, however, that the same uh, level of attention to his educational needs wouldn't be met at the next level. Public schools sometimes don't have the resources or time to sort of dive deeper into what a student might be passionate about. Families are generally assigned to a school by zip code, as you know, and those zip codes tell you what school you're going to go to. We shouldn't expect that any one school will best meet the needs of all the children who just happen to live in a certain geographic area. You don't get the ability to opt out of those schools because you don't have the financial resources to access the private education marketplace the way your wealthier peers do. And because you're there involuntarily, and can't leave, we don't have to ensure that we give you an education worth In 2011, New Hampshire State Senator Jim Forsyth began work on what would become a major education reform in his state. So the education tax credit bill is a bill that helps uh, needy children go to the school of their choice, whether that's a local public school that's out of district or homeschooling or the private school of their choice. Families that can move to a different district or can afford to pay for their children to go to private school kind of already have this built in, right, this in place. But families that otherwise couldn't afford those options are stuck. The program works like this. Corporate taxpayers in New Hampshire make donations to scholarship organizations, nonprofits that provide assistance to parents that wanted to send their children to a new school. Low-income parents could choose private schools, religious schools, even homeschooling or another public school. The corporations, for their part, would receive a tax credit of 85% of the donation amount. It's not unlike taking a tax deduction for a charitable gift. The scholarship organizations would fund students to the tune of about $2,500 each, some more and some less, depending on need. It was the first school choice program that included specific provisions for parents who wanted to homeschool their children. Adam Schaefer from Cato Institute um, showed us how that uh, homeschooling could be added into the tax credit program and the legislation. We immediately um, 
jumped on that as, a, as an option for this program. If a parent chooses to, to homeschool their children, um, which is a significant commitment on a, on a parent's part, I think people felt um, they wanted to make some sort of an assistance there to allow you, again, as many options as possible. It's significant because previously I think people had thought, well, we can't do anything for homeschoolers. We were the first in the country. Um, my understanding is uh, we have a number of families that have benefited from being able to take that as an option for their family. What was holding them back, believe it or not, was the cost of the materials. The program endured an intense battle in New Hampshire's legislature. I went to St. Lazarus School as a kid. I went to St. Joseph's School. My parents didn't get any tax credit. I rise in opposition uh, to this amendment. This is wrong. It's unconstitutional. What this is about is some basic fairness. It's about the good of competition. We should be doing more for public education not finding ways to withdraw from public education. This is an opportunity which is going to save our communities money and provide an opportunity for people that don't have it today. You're ruining the very basis of our society. There are roughly 31,000 private school students in New Hampshire. Those parents have donated around $470 million through the public school system and reduced education costs. And we're squabbling about giving a few $2,500 scholarships back? Make a choice. Pay for it. Pay for that choice. Over a governor's veto, the program started in 2013, but opponents continued their fight. The program survived a repeal effort by a single vote in the Senate in the next legislative session. So when I saw that legislation pass, I knew that I wanted to start a scholarship organization. And so um, January 2013, which really was the first day that um, I could file the paperwork to become a scholarship organization, I did that. And I was approved by the Department of Revenue in January of 2013, and I've been doing the work ever since. I connected with Kate through email because I had some questions initially about the program and wondering if if we were a family that might fit. Brandon Fide is a single dad and a public school teacher in New Hampshire and a recipient of a scholarship from NEO. The scholarship made the difference of being able to send his daughter Alika to Kimball Union Academy in Northern New Hampshire. Right now, that tax scholarship represents a choice for us and I think that as a parent, I really value having that choice. I knew that it would be the best option for her with her personality and many other things, um, but I didn't know if we'd be able to afford it. So at that point, um, when the program started to take shape, I thought, well, if that is a way that might help me fund her education, I'm all for it. The small classes, the variety of classes, um, the high expectations for academics, you know, I think all of that has been great. I'm taking Spanish and Chinese, and I don't think I'd be able to do that anywhere else, so I think that's really great and unique. This is the first year where I've been excited to go to class, and I like want to learn, and I want to see my teachers, which I don't think I'd like be excited. I wasn't excited to go to class last year, so it's really different. We knew when he was about two years old, when he learned his alphabet, learned all the states and capitals, we knew that he was, he was different. <laughs> and we wanted to make sure that he thrived in whatever academic environment he was in, whether it's public school, home school, or private school. Earl and Alice Tucson are engineers by training. They now run Red Mance Farm in Loudoun Center, New Hampshire. 
Their oldest son, Thomas, attends the Beach Hill School, thanks in part to the scholarship program. We attended a school choice event about a year ago, and that's how we found Beach Hill School. The pace is better for me. It's not really slow like it was in my old school. And they also go a lot more in-depth. Without the scholarship, uh, Thomas would have attended a different school that we didn't feel uh, would have been uh, quite as good a fit for him. Uh, Lenny was facing going into seventh grade, and our local junior high school is atrocious. You know, it's just... I, I didn't want her in there, you know, so she was looking at maybe homeschooling again and she didn't, she didn't want to do that. So I said, why not, we'll apply for the private school. Sonia Bruladakis is a married mother of five in Manchester. The scholarship helped the Bruladakises send their oldest daughter, Eleni, to nearby Liberty Harbor. They do a classical education. It's more based on history and language arts. Within a month we had to give a thousand dollar deposit so I you know I have nowhere to wear I didn't have it so I gathered up my um, jewelry and my engagement ring and my mother's um, jewelry because I said you know my mother would value Eleni getting an education more than me holding on to her diamond you know so I sold those things and I made the deposit Families make incredible sacrifices for their children. I mean, your children are your top priority, okay? And particularly families that have challenges, understand that they want their children to succeed and be in a position that's better than the position that they're in. I was just, I was on like a mission. I was gonna just sell whatever, uh, anything of value that I had so that we could just pay down the tuition and so it would bring the monthly payments down once we got going. But then a couple weeks later, Kate called my husband and said, oh, we'll pay the rest of your tuition for you. And I just was like, oh, you know, what a blessing, what a gift. In the first year of scholarship tax credits, the program received more than 1,000 applications from parents. NEO, then the only scholarship organization in operation, awarded more than $128,000 to more than 100 students from 62 families. And just a few months into the program, the Cato Institute's Jason Bedrick conducted the first survey of how parents reacted to the scholarships and their children's new schools. Our survey found that parents were overwhelmingly satisfied. 97% of parents said that they were satisfied or very satisfied with their chosen home or private school. Even within the first three months, nearly 70% of families reported that they saw measurable improvement in their child's academic performance. Last year I raised um, $250,000 for scholarships, and of that I was actually able to use about half, and unfortunately I had to return half. It's like a, uh, an IED, an, an, uh, an explosive device, planted in our school system that goes off slowly over a period of years. Opponents filed a lawsuit attempting to have the program thrown out by the courts. The lead plaintiff in the case of Duncan v. New Hampshire was local businessman Bill Duncan. The suit claimed the money donated to scholarship organizations was actually public money, and the program therefore would violate the state's constitution. Duncan received representation from Americans United for Separation of Church and State and the ACLU. Duncan, his attorneys, and other plaintiffs 
declined to be interviewed for this film. New Hampshire uh, Constitution has a Blaine Amendment which you know says you can't take taxpayer money and spend it on religious schools. So, so that's the argument that they made um, that this is taxpayer money and that's exactly why they kept calling it a voucher over and over again. Voucher system, voucher, voucher program, voucher system, voucher, voucher, the voucher children, the voucher bill. Because they wanted to make that argument, well it's not a voucher program, it's a tax credit program. At trial, Duncan prevailed in part. The trial court prohibited religious schools from receiving scholarship students, and Kate Baker had to return more than $100,000 to corporate donors. What they said was, we can't give scholarships to a family who want to use them at a religious school. And that did eliminate a very large part of our applicants. So we weren't able to help a lot of families that needed help um, and had to return some of that money because of this legal battle. I, of course, hope justice will prevail in New Hampshire very soon and I'll be able to help families regardless of their beliefs. You know, I've never discriminated against someone I don't want to start now. There is a distinction to be made between direct appropriations made by the legislature and awarding tax credits to private individuals to incentivize certain activity. As the case moved to the New Hampshire Supreme Court, Dick Comer at the Institute for Justice intervened on behalf of parents. There are no state appropriations under a tax credit program. It operates the same as the tax deductions we're much more familiar with or the tax exemptions that we're familiar with. Using that tax credit structure, um, it resolves a lot, of, uh, a lot of the issues that some of the earlier programs have had while nonetheless preserving a parental choice and allowing for maybe the maximum level of freedom and uh, opportunity to use the um, scholarship essentially anywhere. In 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court dealt with exactly this issue. Does the existence of scholarship tax credits make the scholarship funds public funds? The Supreme Court said that until the money enters the public treasury, it's not public money. The Arizona Supreme Court case was clear that tax credits are not taxpayer money. If you can't have the tax credits that help parents, how can you have a tax exemption which directly benefits churches and religious schools, among other uh, charitable organizations? Uh, it, it would be a colossal undermining of what New Hampshire has always accepted as legitimate legislative activity. This is case 2013-0455, Bill Duncan et al. versus the state of New Hampshire et al. It's your position that none of the plaintiffs have standing in this case, right? Yes, sir. That's absolutely right. And why? This program uses the state tax system to divert funding away from public schools to religious schools. You know, local property taxes or whatever, that's, that's okay? The very facts in this case tell you what proportion of schools, the private educational institutions in New Hampshire remain religious. And many of them are, somewhere over 50% of them are, and they receive direct aid from the tax exemptions that New Hampshire has awarded from time immemorial. If the lawsuit prevails, what happens to the students that so education tax credits have already been to the U.S. Supreme Court and been proven to be constitutional. Um, I think justice will prevail in the New Hampshire Supreme Court and that 
the Supreme Court will agree with the U.S. Supreme Court and other Supreme Courts across the nation that it's constitutional. If the opponents of this program prevail, what happens to the students that NEO has, is in the process of helping? No answer? I'd like to spin positive. I understand that. Yeah. And I wouldn't, it, I don't want to put my resume together, Caleb, and not be able to help families. My intention is to help them to be able to get the education that they need for their children. It would be an enormous, enormous transfer of power from private individuals to the government. The government would now essentially be able to control everything. And the motto of New Hampshire, live free or die, would become some sort of ironic footnote in history. Because now the government would own everything. In a unanimous decision, the New Hampshire Supreme Court threw out Duncan's lawsuit, stating that Duncan and the other petitioners could not show that they had suffered a personal injury as a result of the scholarship program. Alika Fide is now a sophomore at Kimball Union Academy. Her father, Brandon, says the scholarship program continues to allow him to send her to the school of his choice. Thomas Tucson is now in seventh grade at the Beach Hill School. Alice and Earl Tucson hope to send their two other sons to Beach Hill with assistance from a scholarship. Eleni Bruladakis did not return to Liberty Harbor in 2014. Her mother, Sonia, blames the lawsuit. Eleni now attends a just-opened charter school in Manchester. Bill Duncan was appointed to the New Hampshire State Board of Education on May 8, 2014. Thank you for watching Live Free and Learn Scholarship Tax Credits in New Hampshire. Uh, Austin Bragg and I uh, got to spend about a week in New Hampshire uh, shooting a lot of that and enjoyed uh, a great deal of it and uh, got to meet and talk to uh, Jim Forsyth, who is a former New Hampshire state senator and also the sponsor of the uh, legislation that became the uh, scholarship program in New Hampshire. So, uh, Jim, if you don't mind, Describe what the, the politics were like before uh, this program, you started working on this program. Sure, before I do that, I'll just acknowledge Greg Hill was uh, in the House Absolutely. and he was the, the big, huge help in the House in terms of writing the bill. Um, so the situation was interesting because we had overwhelming re Republican support in both the House and the Senate, um, so, but we had a Democratic governor and so early on we were trying to get him to not veto because we were confident we could pass a, a school choice bill, but we weren't so confident that we could pass it and override a veto. Um, but, but near the tail end, he did still veto it, and so we had to work to get that uh, veto override numbers, which we were always working towards, and that was the big challenge. And that was uh, pretty close. It was pretty close, and it, we did not have a veto-proof majority um, when the, the bill first came, uh, came over from the House. So, you know, there was a Senate bill and a House bill, and, and once those passed and swapped houses, we didn't have a veto-proof majority coming out of the House. Um, and, and part of the reason was, you know, a, a prominent fiscal conservative in the House had spoken out against the bill, 
because of a concern about impact to the um, local taxpayers, the property taxpayers, because this was a bill focused on state aid, and so they were concerned about that. And so we did some things in the bill to address that concern and get it up to a veto-proof majority. If you have a question for uh, any of our, our guests here, Jim Forsyth, former New Hampshire state senator and sponsor of the legislation that we discussed uh, in the film Live Free and Learn, Jason Bedrick, education policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, and Dick Comer, a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, you can use the hashtag CatoConnects on Twitter, and we'll try to get to as many of your questions over the next uh, half hour or so. So, Jason Bedrick, uh, we made note of the fact that you were a New Hampshire state representative, which, uh, as I came to find out when I visited New Hampshire, isn't really all that impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it's about, I think, one in three people in the state are, uh, are there's 400 members of the House in a state of 1.3 million people, so it's actually roughly one for every 3,300 people. So it's, the, it's by far the most representative legislative body in the world. Okay, so um, you are a student of uh, education policy and um, you were no longer in the State House when uh, this program was actually moving forward, but what was your role? Uh, while, I, while I was at graduate school, uh, I was a fellow at the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, and so I worked with Jim and Greg Hill and a number of other legislators and my predecessor at Cato, Adam Schaefer, on designing the bill and studying scholarship tax credit programs around the country, sort of figure out best practices and figure out what we could do in, uh, in New Hampshire. All right. So um, this was... a quite a concerted effort of a, a few fairly committed people to handle objections and deal with it. But what were, uh, uh, separate from what we saw in the film, what were some of the big objections that were, that were raised by people who felt that this was radical or problematic in some way? Well, there, there was kind of two groups of people. There's, there's, um, this was a very partisan issue, so Democrats, by and large, didn't support it, although there was a House member that did. Um, and a lot of that opposition, I think, comes from, uh, you know, that that party enjoys a wide support from teachers' unions. And so they didn't want to hang their neck out, and so they were getting a, a push to oppose this um, from the teachers' unions, I think. There, there wasn't, I mean, the big objection from them was this is going to destroy public education. If, And I think if public education can't take at least a little bit of competition, um, then that's a pretty sad state of affairs if somehow a $2,500 uh, tax credit can compete with $16,000 taxpayer funding of a, of a public school. All right, we have a couple of questions here on Twitter. Matthew K. Tabor asks, uh, what was the most compelling, effective selling point in trying to convince legislators that the tax credit was a good idea? And both of you, I think, could speak to that. Um, I think that wasn't actually the hard part. I think, you know, so I, th I think it's something like 70% of Americans understand, uh, you know, the school choice movement and that it makes sense. So the, the selling point really was to address people's fears and concerns about it. Um, you know, what is it going to impact the taxpayer negatively somehow by, by shifting the burden? Um, you know, are there going to be enough protections and something like this? And that's where you have to really start to help them understand that public schools have regulation because, you know, you have to go to them. You can't pull your money out. Private schools don't have the regulation. They have the best form of regulation, which is the parents. If it's not meeting their needs, they can pull them out. So, 
don't think there was any one argument that was the selling point. I mean, you had a body of 400 legislators, and that's just the one side. Um, and there were you know, 36, I think, right in the Senate. And so there were a number of different reasons, a number of different concerns that people had. Uh, but we had spoken with a legislator from Oklahoma, Representative Jason Nelson. They had passed a scholarship tax credit program there. And they to he told us that the way they did it is they were able to answer every single question. So whenever something would come up and we didn't have the answer yet, we would put our heads together, research it, figure it out, and then we put together a, a frequently asked questions list, which, I mean, grew and grew. It was over 17 pages by the end. Uh, there were three different sessions that we held in front of legislators uh, and just sat there sometimes for an hour or two just answering questions from legislators and until they were um, satisfied that we had the answers. But I think the most important thing to answer Matt's question that we emphasized was that different kids have different needs and it doesn't make sense in the 21st century to have an education system where children are assigned to a school just based on the home that their parents can happen, happen to afford. Uh, that some, you know, 80% of kids in, in a given district, that school may work great for, but there may be 20% or even just 10% that that school is not great for those kids. And so we want to expand the options for kids. And most people seem to agree with that. The only question was really logistically, how do we do it? Um, and is it going to have an, a negative impact on the, on the public schools? When, when they were satisfied that, that it was best for everybody, then they were for it. All right, we have another question from Gus LaFontaine. What primary challenges might other states face if they sought to adopt similar legislation? And uh, I would like to, you to chime in on this, uh, Dick Comer, as well, because some of those challenges are quite severe uh, in, in terms of even the state constitutions. Yes, absolutely. Um, as occurred in New Hampshire, it's uh, entirely possible that if you pass school choice legislation, whether a uh, directly funded scholarship program or a tax credit funded scholarship program, the usual suspects, Americans United for Church, Separation of Church and State, the ACLU, the teachers unions, the school boards association, they are more likely than not they will file a lawsuit against the program alleging that it violates some sort of state constitutional provision. In New Hampshire, it was a Blaine Amendment, um, and uh, I think there's 38 to 40 states that have Blaine Amendments in their constitutions, but any number of things can be thrown in in an effort to derail the program. Now, in uh, at the oral argument at the New Hampshire Supreme Court, one of the uh, justices there referred to attenuation, that is uh, the separation between uh, the state and uh, these scholarships. And it almost seemed to be, well, there's clearly a thread running from the state to these scholarships, but let's talk about this attenuation, an attempt to, uh, as uh, Alex, uh, the attorney for Americans United described, uh, diverting funds that otherwise would be going to public schools. Can you talk about that, just that argument a little bit? Sure. I mean, we have always argued, those of us who are in favor of school choice programs, that when you provide scholarships to families, 
that that breaks any sort of link between the state aiding religion. And we believe that um, in particular with tax credit programs, that that relationship is even more attenuated because it's not using state money. The state, just as they do through the tax code, which encourages donations, deductions for donations to charitable organizations, here is providing taxpayers with a tax credit. And the money that actually funds the scholarship is donations made to scholarship granting organizations. And that further attenuates the relationship between the state and whatever school may ultimately receive the money, particularly religious schools, because with Blaine amendments and with the federal constitution's establishment clause, um, the focus is on uh, the religious schools and the, the aspect of religious versus non-religious schools. All right, the California Association of Private School Organizations, uh, CAPSO, asks, to what extent did your advocacy efforts succeed in turning around opposing votes? There, was, there were two votes in the state Senate and uh, they were different. Uh, the outcomes were different in order to override sure. that governor's veto. Um, how much might the advocacy help turn votes around? A huge amount. Um, in the House, like Jason says, 400 people. Um, so, so it's hard to reach everybody. But what, what Jason didn't, didn't say is that in a House that big, a lot of people are just going to listen to people they trust to figure out how to vote. So you have to find out who those people are. And Jason, when he was in, was one of those. Um, so he had a big impact because of that. Um, so the, the, the House representative, Republican House representative that spoke against it in the House, um, in the House, uh, when it went for a vote in the House and, and helped keep it from getting veto-proof, um, I, I took him aside and said, what, what, do I, you know, what do I need to do to get your support of this? And how can I fix any concerns? What are those concerns? And sat down and worked uh, along with him to figure out what the concerns were. Some were not valid. Um, some were valid but improbable, like you know the fiscal impact of local school districts. Mathematically, it just couldn't be more than a drop in the bucket. So we made that explicit in the bill that if any school district lost in a certain 0.25% of their school budget because of this program, they'd get uh, something to supplement that loss. Of course, that won't happen and hasn't happened. All right. Uh, we have another question. Todd Kiefer asks, uh, has anyone considered allowing individual taxpayers to donate to the scholarship fund for tax credits? And I think I can actually answer this one, <laughs> which is uh, without a personal income tax at the state level, which uh, New Hampshire doesn't have, there's nothing to count against the donation to the uh, the scholarship organization, but Correct. for for states that might right. that do have personal right. income taxes, which are which is most states, mm -hmm. is, is that is that a better way to go than say, uh, making it a, a corporate donation? Well, just as good, and actually, there are a number of states that have individual tax credits, and uh, there are some states, um, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, and, and several others, where they have both a corporate tax credit and an indi individual tax credit. Well, I, I was going to say. Um, no, doing it through an income tax is worse. You get rid of the income tax and then put the tax credit onto something else um, to do it right. But, but you know, I think we could do something through property tax. So you have to look at, you know, what are the tax mechanisms that are currently funding education in your particular state? For us at the state level, that was mainly the business income tax. So that's what we went after. Um, at the local level, it's the property tax, which is, which is a, a bigger portion and kind of a harder 
uh, sell for people right off the bat and, and more complicated. There, there had been a bill that I think it was in a, um, an opinion of the court, not a, a ruling that, that the local property tax tax credit that somebody proposed was unconstitutional. I don't know how that was formatted, but my understanding is the way they were doing is, you know, you could send your own kid to a private school and somehow get a tax credit. I think if they went back and did something like that where you could donate, you know, anybody in the town could donate, so it was an opportunity for everybody to receive the tax credit to a scholarship organization that helped people in your town. I think that could work, so. All right. Uh, David Lowenthal has a re question related to this. Uh, we see growth in choice on the demand side. Credits and ESAs, education savings accounts. Are we going to see liberty on the supply side, that is, curriculum choice, et cetera? Jason? Yes, actually, uh, New Hampshire is at the forefront of this because New Hampshire has the first scholarship tax credit program that uh, allowed homeschoolers to participate. And so homeschoolers are able to purchase um, homeschool curricula, um, hire a tutor, a whole bunch of things, you know, textbooks, et cetera. Uh, there are also two states that have what are called education savings accounts, uh, Arizona and Florida, where the state gives 90, for a family that opts their child out of the public school, the state gives 90% of the portion that would have gone to that child directly to the parents. They have a debit card they can use for a number of expenses, like I mentioned, tuition, tutors, textbooks, uh, online learning, and whatnot. Uh, so we're moving in that direction. There are a lot of legislatures around the country interested in that, and it'll allow families to really customize and tailor the education for the individual needs of their own children. All right, Jody Sun asks, why is the limit $2,500? How can $2,500 help with tuition that costs $30,000, and then in parentheses, KUA, or $15,000 public high school? So actually, it's uh, an average of $2,500. That was the maximum average, and that was done in order to make sure that the bill uh, had fiscal savings. Uh, but if you look at the report, uh, Choosing to Learn, at the Josiah Bartlett website, Josiah Bartlett Center website, uh, there is an appendix that has all of the posted school tuitions in the top 10 most populous uh, towns and cities in New Hampshire. And the average uh, tuition was actually somewhere closer to about $5,000. So that $2,500 really can go a long way for families. Okay. And, you know, when I, when I spoke with Brandon Fide and uh, Sonia Brilodakis in, in New Hampshire, they both talked about you know, it's a significant challenge to put together the kind of money that they both uh, did have to put together. And that almost seems to, uh, the fact that families are directly investing in it, it seems like they are more invested in the outcomes as well. Yeah, can I, you talk about that I, a little bit? I worked bit? with a, a program in Colorado um, that did scholarships, but this was done purely privately. And um, that was something that they saw and they found is having skin in the game is, is an important thing. And, and these families do have skin in the game. I mean, when you're spending your own money, um, you really think very carefully about what the best choice is. And it's interesting that very act of choice, uh, I think, also often brings about improvements, just sitting there and thinking about it. All right, Rob Rafferty asks, uh, how do you respond to those who are skeptical of social policy through the tax code in general? Take a <laughs> Well, I, I, I will just say on, 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 in terms of this bill, we were concerned about that. In other words, you, you give a tax credit for a program like this, how do you ensure that the schools don't wind up getting regulated by it? Um, first off, doing it through a tax credit as opposed to um, doing it through like a voucher 
helps that a lot because you can say this is not public money. And that's the argument we can continually use. And, and then also, um, and then uh, we put in a lot of protections into the bill that says, you know, that you can't further regulate any of these schools because they're part of this program. So I think it's something you have to be aware of, but, um, you know, what, what's the alternative? This is really the opposite of social engineering when you think about it. Uh, the ultimate social engineering project is our public school system where everybody is assigned to a school based on where they can live. Uh, and the government highly regulates what's taught, when it's taught, and how it's taught. Here we have a system, we are empowering families to choose to educate their children in the way that they see fit. So this really is the, the opposite of social engineering. This is empowering families to do what they want instead of what the government wants them to do. All right, uh, if you have a question for uh, any of our guests, uh, Dick Comer, Jim Forsyth, and Jason Bedrick about the New Hampshire Scholarship Tax Credit program, uh, especially for perhaps your state. Uh, you can use the hashtag CatoConnect on Twitter and ask your question. We'll try to get to, again, as many of those as possible in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Um, what was the biggest challenge for uh, you, Jim, uh, at putting this piece of legislation together, I mean, over and above objection handling and that sort of thing. This is a very uh, carefully designed uh, program. Um, th there was a significant amount of time. I mean, we had a conservative legislature, so the, the biggest challenge to us in, sell in getting this passed was really to show that it was something that was going to, you know, be fiscally neutral or save money. You know, fiscally neutral and provide more choices, which is a better outcome. Um, but, but at worst, fiscally neutral, hopefully save money. So that was a big challenge, and, and that's where my background in math help, helped a lot because I was able to work with the Department of Education and try to ask, okay, what are, you know, how are you doing your analysis? Because they determine the fiscal note. So I worked a lot with the Department of Education to figure out how they do their analysis and then the structure of the program so that it would meet those needs. For example, um, there, there is an extra amount of money from the state that goes towards kids that are eligible for free and reduced lunches. So that means if one of those kids goes to a private school, we save more money. So we made that, and, and then if you look at these programs in other states, they're you know, 50, 60, 80% of the scholarship recipients are on free and reduced lunch. Um, but the OE was using the numbers of the average number of students that would <coughs> normally qualify like 25%. So we, we built what we expected to happen, which is a lot of, of those students in the program, we built that into the legislation to make the fiscal impact more clear. So it, it became required that the scholarship organization have at least 40% in free and reduced lunch. And, and right now, in the first two years of the program, it's 80%. No, it was 91 so, in the first year. Yeah, but so. So, so help me understand this argument, uh, which is offered was offered by your opponents and I think continues to be offered, which is this is draining money from the public schools. And g give us a comparison of like, the, just the, the, the basic math associated well, with this kind of program. So, so it was interesting because I, if you're talking about the person I think you're talking about, he, he brought in a spreadsheet and he used the argument that, you know, this program increases 20, could increase 25% a year, you know, 10 years down the road, there's, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people in this program and therefore we have this less tax revenue, et cetera, and so forth. So I asked, well, how many of those students are currently in private schools? Well, you know, a couple thousand. So where did all these students come from? Well, public school. Well, public school costs on average $16,000 a student in New Hampshire. So if you've managed to move 30,000 people out of the public school system for $2,500, and that's not even $2,500 of 
it's an 85% tax credit. So it's actually $2,100, $2,200 in reduced revenue. So if you've managed to move that many people into a private system for that little amount of money, that's a huge positive impact. So, um, you know, you, you can't make an argument that $16,000 on average and we're giving a scholarship for $2,500 and somehow that's going to tear apart the public school system. Well, but the deeper concern of those people is that the pool of money that had been set aside specifically for spending on the public school system is no longer available because those students are being educated privately. I'm not trying to justify it, but, there, but that, that, that seems to be the deeper concern. Well, I mean, the, the, even, the way we, even the way we structured it, it's still not a level playing field. You know, they're getting $16,000 versus $2,500, so there will always be plenty. With that kind of a structure, there will always be plenty of kids in public school. But I guess I would ask the question is why is it necessarily – I mean, as long as they're going to a school that works for them, what difference does it make what school they go for? Is there some inherent value for it being a public school system? I mean, obviously, everybody needs to have an opportunity for good education, but whether that's the market or the public system – and I, I think, you know, some of the states that have had school choice programs for a long time have seen what happens traditionally is a program like this starts up um, and the public school systems respond. They improve this, you know, they improve their outcomes and start to, you know, actively keep the students in and they have a better outcome. So um, built into the resource question is an assumption that there is a direct correlation between the resources a school has and the performance right. of that school. And that's just simply false. I mean, over and over, they've looked, there have been studies on this. Eric Hanushek from Stanford found that that's just not the case. I mean, if that were the case, then Washington, D.C., at $30,000 per pupil per year, would have the best school system in the country instead of the worst school system in the country. Um, there have been a number of studies of the impact on, actually almost two dozen studies on the impact on public schools. Every single study so far has found a small but statistically significant impact, positive impact on public school performance after the introduction of a school choice program, except one which found no difference. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's very clear the public schools, once, as Jim said, once there's competition, the public schools are working to keep those kids. So not only is a school choice program good for the children who get to leave and go to the school that works best for them, it's actually also good for those students who stay behind. Because they have that option to leave, their voice is more powerful and the school is more responsive to them. Uh, Dick Comer, we, we touched on this briefly beforehand, but when uh, how many states have these Blaine amendments? How many states have compelled support clauses and, you know, break out what those things are for people who are interested in this kind of reform in their state. Sure. So you've got 38 states with Blaine amendments that basically say no money shall be appropriated to the benefit of uh, sectarian schools. Um, that's the classic Blaine amendment. And these, that, these emerged out of sort of anti-Catholic bias in yes. the 19th century, is that right? That's correct. I mean, as the country became more religiously diverse and the uh, monopoly of the Protestant majority over the public schools was challenged by the Catholics, um, the Catholics started setting up their own schools because the public schools as generically Protestant institutions were uh, inhospitable to Catholic immigrant children. 
there actually was an effort to proselytize the Catholic kids and turn them into good Protestants. So the Catholics set up their own schools and started demanding that the public school funds be split between the Protestant public schools and the um, uh, Catholic parochial schools. And in fact, um, this was very much the case in New Hampshire where um, the Catholic immigrants were coming from Quebec and from Ireland. Both jurisdictions uh, did in fact divide the school funds between Protestant and Catholic schools and they were asking for the same thing here in the United States. And the, the response was immediate and unequivocal, which was no. We're going to reserve all of the school funds for the Protestant public schools, and if you don't like it, you can go to your own schools, but not with any state funding. That's what the basic Blaine Amendment does. Now, the compelled support provisions are older. Um, there's about 27 of those. Some states have both, so you only have three states, Maine, Louisiana, and North Carolina, that have neither. And the Compelled Support Clause just basically says that no person shall be compelled to support any church without his consent. Um, these were originally sort of disestablishment provisions in state constitutions uh, designed to eliminate the state religions because at the time of the, the founding, New England had established the Congregationalist Church for most of the New England states. The southern states had established the Anglican Church, and everybody had to support those churches, sometimes even attend those churches. Um, and these provisions were intended to eliminate established religion, but they have been construed occasionally by state supreme courts in much the same way as Blaine amendments can be construed to prohibit any aid to religious schools. Now the problem for school choice programs under both is that school choice programs don't actually support or aid schools directly at all. They aid parents and parents make the choice. And some states with good Blaine law interpret the provision to allow school choice programs. New York does. Um, Pennsylvania does. These are states that have Blaine amendments. Uh, Pennsylvania's got a compelled support clause. And states can misinterpret compelled support clauses to be hostile to school choice also, as the state of Vermont did. Um, so both of these sorts of provisions are subject to what I consider historical misinterpretations that serve to limit school choice programs. Properly construed, neither sort should, in fact, be interpreted to prohibit giving families a choice. Let, let me ask you, as a related matter, and maybe this will help clarify the issue for uh, some people who are uh, watching tonight, how is it that we have a GI Bill that allows yeah. uh, returning soldiers, soldiers who are receiving some education benefits, how are they then able to attend uh, religious uh, schools? Um, actually, because those were, um, that was a critical aspect that led the, the U.S. Supreme Court to interpret the Federal Establishment Clause 
to permit school choice programs. There's a direct link through the cases between the GI Bill program and the Nyquist case where they left a footnote saying it's, the GI Bill is not threatened by this decision. And the subsequent decision in Zellman versus Simmons-Harris in 2002 upholding the Cleveland School Choice Program. Basically, it's the same principle. If you can use the GI Bill at a religious or non-religious college, then you should be able to use a K-12 scholarship at a religious or non-religious school. All right, we have a... Okay, well, can yeah, I go a ahead. Real quick Please, point go about ahead. That. So, so that's an interesting thing because the, the, the cur current governor of New Hampshire um, proposed a bill to, to essentially provide scholarships for college students um, that could be used at a religious school. Um, but she supported and put Bill Duncan on the board to try to get rid of this tax credit program. And I think that shows you kind of, I think the difference between how people approach K through 12 versus colleges has a lot to do with, with the unions and, you know, how they, how they push for these kinds of things or push against them. All right. We have a question from Chris Bossy McCoy. This seems like a great answer for homeschool parents. What are the odds of expanding it to other states? As we noted in the uh, beginning of the, the film, this was, this was a first of its kind uh, reform uh, in New Hampshire to include homeschooling parents. So, Jim, how did that come about, and what do you think the odds are of expanding the, that type of uh, tax credit program for homeschooling parents? Um, how, how that came about was simply, um, the, you know, the, the core kind of writers of the bill were big supporters of homeschooler, including myself. My kids were homeschooled for, I think, seven years. Um, so, and, and I think we talked to Adam Schaefer about it and says, has this been done? You know, how would you do this? Adam, Adam Schaefer, who's an adjunct at Cato and was right. at the time a full-time here at the Cato Right. Institute. So we, you know, we thought of how could we do this and we were careful about, you know, we didn't want to provide a scholarship to pay the parents directly for their time because that could set up a, a fairly strange incentive, you know, to homeschool whether or not you're actually, you know, working hard on it. So, um, so yeah, so we just from very early on, try to figure out, you know, how we, we'd put something like this in. And, you know, we chose to support the materials, you know, buying this materials. Um, I, I think it's easily expandable to other states. Um, we didn't really face any opposition from it other than the mechanics of, okay, you know, are you paying these kids to, you know, f families just to stay at home? No, you're not. You're paying for the materials. And everybody's like, oh, okay, I'm fine with that. Uh, we have a question from uh, Kate Baker, who <laughs> Kate. I strongly suspect is that Kate Baker. Oh, I know her question. Uh, I'll answer it. Uh, how does one make a contribution to support the New Hampshire Scholarship <laughs> Program? Kate Baker, of course, runs the Network for Educational Opportunity uh, and is very interested in finding out how people can, corporate taxpayers in New Hampshire, can support uh, her uh, scholarship organization. But uh, I want to note, hers was the first, but as of now, uh, it is not the only scholarship organization operating in New Hampshire. So well, how, does it, how does it function with uh, corporate taxpayers w trying to make these contributions? Well, the, first, the answer to our first question is networkforeducation.org is where you would <laughs> donate. I, I don't know uh, the website for the other scholarship organization. I think they're catering, catering towards religious schools. They had, they had put in very early to do this. But then when the court case came down, they stopped and they've been waiting. And so now they're, they're back getting active. Um, but, but the idea behind scholarship organizations 
is it adds a free market incentive in there to be, to be able to have more than one, you know, unlike a voucher program where the government's handling the money. Or if you were to contract out a single scholarship organization, you, you know, you can understand how there'd be some chances of money to go missing that way. But when you have multiple competing scholarship organizations, there's a lot of scrutiny from the business owners to say, you know, are you handling my funds well? Are you getting it to the right kids? Um, and there's also an incentive to reduce your overhead because of that. So, so that's why we chose that format. And there was some ways to structure it. So, you, it, you know, it, it worked reasonably well. We have a uh, statement from Brandon Fide, who lives in northern New Hampshire. He says, great work, gentlemen. Thank you. I pay a lot of taxes. Meanwhile, I'm saving my town $15,500 in tuition uh, to a neighboring high school. Well, and I, I think that's sort of an under, undersold uh, element of this, which is overall spending on education under this program, overall yeah. spending goes up. That's right. Um, you know, you're, you're pulling kids out for a very small fraction of the price. So there's overall more money, plus the parents are throwing in their money. The businesses are adding a little bit of money. So, so overall spending on education goes up. But yeah, there, one of the other state senators who supported the program, I think he had 10 kids, Fenton? Had something like 10 kids all homeschooled. You know, and he made the point, I, I saved the state $160,000 a year. He says, and I don't want any of that money back. You know, I, I'm, my kids aren't getting a scholarship. We can afford it. But, you know, please help some families that, that can't afford it. I mean, you know, the, the, the burden these families take on and the, you know, the burden they relieve on the taxpayer is, is huge. Charity Wolf asks a question. Finally, uh, how can learning, the learning disabled benefit from uh, this kind of tax credit? Um, I, think, I think there's a really good opportunity. Um, we've seen that Amongst private schools, there is a, a much higher satisfaction rate. Um, I mean, you, it, you're going to have to search for a school that's more custom for what you're looking for. Um, but the, the, the satisfaction rate in public schools for special ed is, is really low. Um, and and it, su it surprises people that it's as high as it is in, in, the, in the private schools. Jason probably has the data on that. I, I can't pull it off the top of my head. But um, we did structure one thing into the bill because special ed kids uh, receive 1850 more in state aid on average. So we structured the bill that, you know, that, that um, you could get, you, those kids could get increased scholarships um, because of that. Right, and again, this is this case where every single student benefits. I mean, you, you often hear from the public schools, oh, these special ed kids, they're way too expensive. Uh, we don't get enough money from the state to educate them. It's a real drain on our resources. But then when you give those students the opportunity to leave and they take not only their, um, their base allocation but also the additional allocation from the state for the special ed services and they say, okay, we're leaving and that school is no longer going to get that, suddenly the schools figure, oh, actually, you know what? Um, it is cost effective for us to educate that kid and they want to compete for those kids. And we've seen actually in a number of states where that's, that's exactly been the case, that those families are better off in the public schools after the program because the public schools are now trying to cater to them because they have the option to leave and go somewhere else. Because there is so much money that is effectively attached to uh, learning disabled children from right. state and, and federal government. Right. And when there's competition, the schools suddenly figure out, actually, we are able to provide you high quality service at the amount of money that we're getting. All right, uh, as, we, as we close up here, I, I do wanna ask uh, each of you, if you had a message for uh, state lawmakers in other states that are considering this kind of thing and don't really know where to begin, what do you, what do you tell them? 
Well, I'm always happy to take calls or to talk to people about my experience, but the biggest help for us was really the the analysis and the data, and and really that was Adam Schaefer, um, and and Jason Bedrick. Uh, you know, he he did surveys of Pennsylvania scholarship organizations. So there's a lot of material out there for figuring out what are the different options for doing this, um, what are the benefits, you know, answering people's concerns and all that stuff. So. Uh, you definitely need to do your homework and be ready to answer all those different questions, and um, Cato is a great resource for that. Uh, for lawmakers, it's good policy and it's good politics. Uh, go out there, do it. Uh, feel free to contact the Cato Institute. You can reach me at jbedrick.cato.org, and I'm happy to speak to any lawmaker who's interested. All right, well, hey, Dick. Dick, you want to hey. throw in on that? Go right ahead. Yes, I do, because... Uh, Lawmakers need to know that because of these Blaine Amendments and compelled support clauses, that sometimes a particular sort of school choice program may not be a good idea for your state because it is likely to fail a legal challenge. But I'm happy to say that um, there's really only one or two states that I can name that can't use some form of school choice uh, from a legal perspective. Um, and they're, you know, only if you're in Michigan and Kentucky should you automatically just say, the hell with it. <laughs> Speaking as a Kentuckian, I, I probably agree with you. So thank you very much for joining us for uh, this edition of Cato Connects, the, uh, the film uh, Live, Free, Live Free and Learn. Scholarship tax credits in New Hampshire is now available on YouTube, so feel free to uh, share that. Uh, with your friends or any interested parties. And as always, if you have any questions about this issue uh, or related issues relating to educational freedom, visit our website, cato.org.